in the ever-deepening and awakening of the Dhamma in our own hearts, there are practices that are an enduring resource of strength to us. And there is one resource that's so basic that we often underestimate its power. And that is the resource of patience. So the, the talk tonight is about the power of patience, the power of patience. At the beginning of my practice, I became really interested in this one particular, it's called a parami. A parami are those virtuous qualities that really help us to get through our lives and to get uh, through the spiritual path of awakening. And um, so par- patience was really interesting to me because my mother named me Patience. That's my birth name, actually. Kamala uh, was the name that Manindra gave me. And that sort of stuck since my 20s. So other paramis or beautiful qualities of mind are things like resolve and faith, loving kindness, equanimity, renunciation, wisdom, sila, which means living with a sense of morality and not harming in our lives. So, yeah, energy is another one too. So I think those are ten of them, the ten paramis. And patience is not a quality that gets so much attention in our lives. It seems kind of, you know, if you're patient, sometimes like in in the West, we're supposed to be kind of meek. But actually, patience is a really powerful uh, expression of our strength. So it doesn't get so much Dharma airtime. And I don't hear many talks on patience. So I started talking about patience, and and it always seems to come at the right time. Uh, So I heard some things today about patience and impatience. So I thought, Ah, this is a good time to give the talk. It's said in the Dhamma that patience is the highest virtue. And oftentimes we would hear from our own teachers that the path to peace is paved with patience. So for this reason, it's a, it's a good thing to give it some wise attention. To Even using the word sometimes reminds us, oh, That's what I could use, more patience, and not more sitting, (laughs) but more patience. Not more food, not more sleeping, but sometimes we need those too. But we need more patience, usually. So it strengthens our hearts and minds, so we can play it forward more often for ourselves. Make it be active in our retreat. Uh, and in our daily lives, too. We live in a society that is used to most things being done quickly. So this actually conduces to impatience, you know, when it's not so fast. Um, You know, I hear people saying they're going to get a new computer because it goes a few seconds faster or something like that. (laughs) And... um, You know, we get so impatient when things don't come up on our screen fast enough. I I watch that in myself, you know, like, wow, this is taking so long, and it's like, 
it's like 10 seconds or something like that. So it's amazing how we can judge ourselves um, in relationship to the electronic world. So it's becoming a lost art, this patience, and I think it's, it's time to revive it. In the ancient language of Pali, the word for patience is kanti. And um, I think that's a beautiful name. We know somebody here named Kanti. <laughs> and it, it also means endurance. And patience really gives us the possibility to endure. So sometimes we'd go to the teacher and say whatever we're going through in practice. And the teacher would say something to this, uh, in this way, he would say, you have to outlast it. You have to endure it. You really have to go through it and just let it happen. And so sometimes in my own practice, the note that I have that I have for what's happening is enduring, enduring, and just seeing the mind being trying to be as patient as it can be with what's happening. But sometimes it's patient, other times it's not. It can kind of go back and forth. So enduring is one of the qualities of patience. When you can stick with the process, which you really need to do in this practice, because sometimes, of course, it takes years, you know, when we're on a spiritual path. It doesn't take one retreat or two or three or four even. It takes years of our practice to kind of undergo uh, an inner training so that we can see everything that needs to be seen that all the places that have been hiding from us kind of open up and come out. They can be seen and acknowledged, and there's learning from that. So it takes patience in our relational lives, too, at home. I mean, that's how we we endure raising children, (laughs) and we endure relationships, and we stay with it, and we see how we can grow within difficult times. So with our practice, we need to remind ourselves, with our spiritual life practice, we need to remind ourselves, this is a path that takes time, and its transformation is really worthy of our patience, really worthy of our respect. I found that this understanding of patience is endurance is really true. And I, sometimes I'd, um, you know, I'd see an example in people that I admire. One of them, you know, I give a lot of examples about Manindraji, is when sometimes I would see a look of, of impatience on his face or annoyance. And you could, he, he was so transparent, you could just see things going through him. And so when, when I would go up to him and I'd say, Manindraji, are you impatient? Are you annoyed about something? And sometimes he would give um, a response, um, annoyance is there, but annoyance is not me. You know, in other words, he's, he sees it coming, but he's not so identified with it. But sometimes he would say, my path is not yet finished. <laughs> Like, you know, not all the, the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion have been uprooted in him. 
And I would love that honesty. You know, I'd, I'd really love that he was just so transparent and honest about how his own path. And he wasn't he wasn't presenting himself to be a fully enlightened being. But he had some knowledge, you know, and, and he had some ways of, of guiding us on, on the path. So my path is not yet finished. I, I try to say that sometimes to some people, and it doesn't get the traction that I get from <laughs> <laughs> um, My path isn't finished yet. Good things take time. You know, like trees take time to grow. And, and I learned, I've been studying about trees um, because uh, on the land that I live on, we've planted a lot of trees. And I learned that trees that have the most solid heartwood take the longest time to grow. And of course, they're growing inside, you know, not just going upward, or they're growing inside. And that's what we're doing. Many times, wanting to speed things up actually makes problems for our practice. Like when we're over-striving or we're efforting too much. Um, You might take a look at what's going on in your own practice. Are you expecting something that's not yet happening? You know, that expecting itself is, um, is something that's kind of you don't realize it, but you might be taking a few steps forward, but with expecting mind, you're taking a few steps back all the time. Because what's happening is the wanting, wanting for something to happen that's not happening, or wanting something to happen faster than it really needs to naturally, um, is slowing us down. Because we can't see clearly when that, that wanting for... Um, spiritual advancement. I mean, there's a good seeking for that, but when it's craving for that, it's different. So pushing ourselves or giving up too easily, this this is what happens when impatience is there. I, I remember times when I was in retreat and I wanted to, um, you know, the unfolding to go faster. And I'd go to Manindra and, and I'd complain to him about it. I'd, you know, do a little bit of kvetching and that always made me feel a little better but didn't get me anywhere. And he would say, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. You know, you, you can't push it. You can't ripen the fruit faster than it really does that naturally. And I, I remember that all the time. So. It, it just takes this gentle, persevering effort. And sometimes I just feel that. It's just persevering along the way, but that gentleness that it takes with each step. Um, sometimes you need a little reminder along the way. Sometimes my teachers didn't know what to do with me. Of course, you know, I have to tell you all my foibles so that you feel normal <laughs> in your practice. Um, but I, I try to tell you, you know, things that work too. But there was this one time I was in practice, and it was really annoying that it, it, there was so much pain, and I felt like um, I wasn't getting anywhere. But actually, it was a good time in my practice. Your teachers think that it's really good when you're going through a lot of pain. 
So, especially when it's really, really hard. I guess, you know, you're going through what they call the dukkanyanas. And um, when you're going through a lot of suffering, pain in the body can be pain in the mind too. And so I went to Seda Upandita. He was my teacher during that time. And um, there were, it, it felt like there were four horses tied to each of my limbs, one horse to each limb. And I felt like they were pulling me apart. It was, it was really that bad. That's what I was feeling. And now you don't have to be feeling that level of dukkha to get through this practice. It's just, uh, there's a, supposedly you either go through the door of dukkha, you go through the door of anicca, or you go through the door of anatta as you go through your process. And my door is dukkha. So I can tell you a lot about suffering. So four horses pulling me, uh, one on each limb. So I went to the teachers, and it was Upandita and Nyanaponika of Nepal. And so Nyanaponika spoke English. So I was telling them that I can't stand this. I I really have to go. I'm not going to stay here anymore. And so this is what I feel like. So I I was so uh, upset. I felt like I could just fall on the floor. And I think I did, in in fact. And I said, I can't stay here. And I was crying. And it's too much for me. And so they spoke a little bit to one another. And then Uniana Ponika said in English, they they were quite like, what are we going to do, maybe? You know, kind of reflecting back, I was thinking, they were trying to figure out, what are we going to tell this woman? And (laughs) (laughs) so then uh, Seda Uniana Ponika said, Seda Ji says, when it's really difficult for you, because I was telling him it's so difficult, mostly when I'm walking, not when I'm sitting, because a lot comes out when I'm walking. And he said, uh, when it's so difficult for you, you must bend down very mindfully, pull up your socks, Mm -hmm. then come up very mindfully, and then walk again. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, okay, you know. So I, I just listened to them and I did what they said, you know. So I, I just, what happened was I just turned more mindful. <laughs> you know, I was just bending down mindfully, pulling up my socks mindfully, then starting again. So that's all I needed. I just needed a little bit of like, there was a, that was another way of saying be more mindful. When you're a Dharma teacher, you have to find a thousand and one ways to say, be more mindful. Um, so that's what they told me. And until this day, when I'm walking, and it's, it's a little bit hard, then I bend over and I pull up my socks, bend back up, and I start again. So it just reminds me of their presence and like gentle, persevering effort. It's not like you got to rush towards Nibbana because that's not going to get you there. Like this going beyond this conditional realm is Nibbana. So we need that gentle, persevering energy uh, in our practice. Not like this, i got to do it, and it's got to be now or never. I, I don't sense anybody here like that, but in case it ever gets that way, or maybe it's there, but I don't know about it. And it can come up in our practice. 
So we have to remember to stay open to all experiences because every single experiences that happen uniquely to our practice need to happen in order for the unfolding to take place. It's, you can hear me talk about my practice and yours isn't going to be that way. It's going to be uniquely how you unfold. And, you know, there are some, there are a lot of um, uh, universal ways. There are universal ways that the practice unfolds, but there are different uh, nuances with everyone. So stay open to, to how it's changing. Sometimes we, we can kind of get on a, on a, in a place where it's seeming to stay the same for a long time. And that's a time when we need to really persevere through it. So, but also we need to maintain a quiet inner resolve to just keep our practice moving along. Not like we're going anywhere, but it's kind of just now, and now this moment, and now the next moment, now the next moment. Not that we're trying to get anywhere, just being present really helps. And that's what gives us a a kind of sense of um, contentment. You know, when you're just going along and you feel like it's just this moment, you know, and and you feel like you're not wanting anything. Have have any of you had that experience even for a moment here? When you're you're just not wanting anything and it's so nice. You're just sitting there hearing, 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 smelling, smelling, tasting, tasting, and it's really easy. And it can get that way more, more and more. Or there are more times it can be that way, more spans of time. So it gives us that assurance that we just need this gentle, enduring pace that we can have in our practice. Just plod along, just keep plodding along. And we get those moments of like, oh, this is what it's like momentarily to not want anything. It's amazing to have that feeling of just not wanting something. So you can relate to that as there's, there's some understanding there that's happening. The understanding that it is possible to be in a space of just clarity where the mind's not reaching out for something. It's not reaching out for anything. It's just okay with this moment, very clear. If, there, if there's anything that's to be needed out of necessity, it will come. And that, that will be known. We need water, we need food, we need to rest. That will be known. But it's just the excess that doesn't need uh, to be there. So this inner growth is, is taking place all the time in this quietness if, if we can just let it take place. Um, where I come from, you know, on, in America, patience is regarded as a weakness. And um, it's, it's kind of shocking to me sometimes, you know, how you're, like I'll go to, I'll be in retreat there myself. And, um, or this could be anywhere. You know, it, it could be in line somewhere, in a, in a uh, trying to catch a plane, being in line. 
And peop- you're going to get in. You know, you're going to get in the plane. You've got a ticket. You've got. But people just want to cut in front of you. <laughs> they want to go faster. And they, they always seem to choose me. <laughs> maybe I look like I'm a person you can cut it cut in front of. You know, but mm Better watch out. Try to cut in front of me. I'll tell you to go to the back of the line. <laughs> I'm not going to be a doormat for that. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, if sometimes, of course, if people, children and and elderly people like myself, yeah. but <laughs> but uh, it's such a quiet, reserved, unassuming quality. This patience, you know, that even standing in line to go get food in a retreat, where you know you just kind of feel like the push behind you if you're trying to be mindful and scooping your food up there and your plate. But actually in spiritual circles it's much more respected. And that's why the Buddha called it the supreme virtue, the highest virtue. So a quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He said, when it is said that one should be patient and withstand trouble, That doesn't mean that one should be defeated or overcome. The very purpose of engaging in the practice of patience is to become stronger in mind. And also you want to remain calm. In that atmosphere of calm, you can have wisdom. If you lose patience, if your mind flounders by emotions, then you have lost the power to see clearly. But if you're patient, then you don't have to lose strength of mind you even increase your strength. And um, just, I've been reading this quote from His Holiness for a long time, but I came across some other ones. I've read this one to you already from Utejaniya, describing the quality of effort. Uh, Virya is the word in Pali. Virya is a spiritual faculty of patience and perseverance together. That's what the kind of energy we need is patience and perseverance. And Mahasi Sayadaw, our grandfather teacher, says a strength, it's a strength capable of preventing hatred or anger in one's own heart. Patience resembles a force of an army being even stronger than the force of an army. So... That's why the Buddha would say, a person equipped with this strength is a brahmana, a noble one. So during one of my own personal retreat times, I, sometimes I go to retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, it's, it's sort of a semi-solitude place where you can have your own... Uh, you can have your own practice there. You check in twice a week or once a week uh, with a teacher, and um, you may need to go to maybe one or two sittings a day to hear a Dharma talk. A Dharma talk's only twice a week, and uh, there's a sitting in the morning with some reflections that you you can go to or you you might not go to. But when I go to the Forest Refuge, I usually decide I'm going to go to at least three sittings in the, of the day, the morning, an afternoon, and the evening one, 
and go to the Dharma talks. Just to have a sense of um, kind of getting myself in the groove and being among spiritual friends. And a lot of other of my peers go there to, to practice as well. So we're all together. But still, there are moments for myself of seeing not so subtle moments of judging and comparing and um, criticizing myself. And it's, it's not, I'm not so um, identified with them, but they're still there. They, they come up and they're, they're annoying. And sometimes I can believe the thoughts that are put out by them. So a lot of manifestations of impatience come uh, and that I want to have something happen sooner than later. And um, I remember the time when I was in practice with one of my teachers. And when I go to the forest refuge, usually I don't have to report to anybody. I just have to keep my own countenance there. But when I'm with one of my teachers, those teachers always ask me, is expecting mind there? That, that's usually a question, especially when you're getting quieter and quieter. Is there expecting mind arising? So I'm always looking for seeing if there's expecting mind, and there is uh, in the practice a lot. It can be subtle. So it's something to watch out for in ourselves. We live in a culture that has this idea of instant gratification. You know, just like getting this app. It it took me about three minutes to get that app. It was amazing. And so you, you want it, you go look online, boom, you get it. You know, so it can be like that with the spiritual path too. Those expectations are lurking around undetectable sometimes. And it's so all around us in our culture, it's so ubiquitous that it's catchy. So we really have to watch out for it because it's so normalized in, in our culture. So it's important to settle back and, and be honest with oneself. What's really happening? Uh, sure enough, we, we might see some of those qualities where we have an appointment with, with our spiritual life. One of the uh, teachers that I've come across, Swami Satyatananda, used to say, no appointment, no disappointment. So if you're not expecting something, you're, you're not going to be disappointed if you don't get it. So it's just helpful to remind ourselves that for this body-mind continuum, each of your own, and, and this one too, it's a unique process. It's, it's, it's not comparable to anybody else's. But still, we'll find ourselves comparing to like, oh, you know, the, the person in front of me is so still and is... Um, that would happen to me when, you know, we I'd have various, like, other peers around me, other Dharma teachers, and they could be right in front of me or right beside me, and it's like, Sometimes I wouldn't want to get up because she's still sitting there, you know. <laughs> so I should still be sitting here. I mean, the, the mind does tricky things like that. Even when you know better, it, it still does the same old thing. Um, or like, oh, that person is so still. Maybe they're in Nibbana already, you know. <laughs> uh, just, and then, then you find out, you know, 
person really still behind you, and I'm not talking about anybody here, of course, you might, um, you know, get up and go out and take a look, and the person's fast asleep. They're not really even awake. I get fast asleep too, so that person's not the only one. So we compare ourselves with something that's not even happening sometimes. It's so funny. So it's helpful to remind ourselves many times that the growth and ripening of this practice has its own pace, its own unique process with each one of us. We all have a different version and combination of the defilements. So they're each going to come out in their own way, you know, at their own timing. We can't tell how it's going to be. So different things come up, like um, comparing mind, I'm not good enough, and um, this is not entertaining enough. And when I was at that one retreat, Joseph Goldstein was was a teacher at that time. He would come in once a week and give a Dharma talk. And one time he was talking about the different kinds of minds that come up. And one time he said, complaining mind. And I thought, oh, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> complaining about this and that. Complaining about how my practice is or this or that in the retreat. You know, that it's too cold, it's too hot. And it's like, you know, by saying something, Joseph is going to go out there and tell all the devas to, can you please make it just right for Kamala? You know, it's just not going to happen, but somehow the mind just likes to complain. I think he he said that because I was being really truthful to him when I went to him and talked to him about my practice just previously. So he's giving me a a message, you know, do you have complaining mind? (laughs) So in this retreat, I found a special message. Somebody put it up on the bulletin board, and it was by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, um, one of the great poets and writers of uh, times past in, in America, adopt the pace of nature. Her secret is patience. And so that's if, if we do that, we're more liable to be in, in alignment with the way things really unfold. So during that month of practice, I memorized a reminder. It was kind of a mantra for me, and this was to support my practice. And I wrote it down on a piece of paper, and I first started to kind of memorize it when I was in one of the walking rooms. So I wrote it down on a piece of paper and I put it at, at one end of, on a windowsill so that I would go to that place of the windowsill and then I would read it and then I would mindfully turn around and walk back. So it would just be reminding myself to kind of get it inculcated in my mind. And uh, So I, I made a copy of it and it was like this. This unfolding process is happening in its own natural way and has its own pace and uniqueness. And that's what made me have more patience with my own practice. It's a reminder that I, because during that time there was an inclination for impatience and it was just conditions coming together. And I don't always 
that isn't always activated in my in my practice, but at that time it was impatience. So all I had to do was to keep showing up and to apply the balanced effort needed and to notice the reactivity of the habitual patterns of the mind and be aware of them. So that was it, to show up. I had this little mantra, show up, shut up, and grow up. (laughs) And that that was my mantra for myself. It was like, you're just being a baby about all this, you know. Show up, shut up, stop complaining, and grow up. And uh, it, it just made me laugh a little bit about myself. So patience is the antidote to a lot of defilements. It's, a, it's an antidote to a lot. You could be going through anything, and if you just apply patience, it can be kind of like the overall medicine, like aspirin or whatever herbal thing you, know, you might go to. Um, it's an antidote for attachment to results. It's the antidote to aversion if it isn't going the way you want it to go. It's the antidote to disappointment. It's the antidote to self-judging and much more, comparing mind. I heard this um, saying from one of the yogis uh, that Achan Chah said, patience is a supreme incinerator. Like it burns up all the defilements. Just throw them in the incinerator of patience and it just burns it up. So it's that kind of antidote. There's no joy, you know, when there's impatience, when we're wanting or we're pushing away or we're comparing. There's no joy in practice when we can just go along, just at an even pace, uh, it can happen that way. You can feel quite a contentment. And this is where a lot kind of unfolds in our lives in our practice, when there's that contentment. That's really rare these days. So the continuity of awareness of mindfulness is so important. Just a very very gentle, very gentle way, a very kind of even-minded pace uh, can help you. Sometimes in practice, uh, we'll hear from our teachers just a few words, just middle path, stay in the middle path, which is what this path is called, the middle path. Not too fast, not too, you don't go so fast so that you're struggling or so slow that you're sinking, like the Buddha said. Just at the right pace for you in your practice. So sometimes I still need to remind myself of that how it's unfolding in a lawful way. And uh, we can't, we can't uh, hasten the ripening of the spiritual life for us. It has to happen at its own unfolding, natural way. That's when new understandings come. They usually come at a time when you're not expecting it. You know, you're just going along, you're not expecting anything great, and some deepening comes, some place where your mind connects the dots to other things, things that you've already understood, and then one more thing comes into view, 
into some right view and boom, the whole picture can be seen in a different way. Of course there's more, there are more different times and added times to that. But each deepening like that really kind of breaks us open in a different way. We see, we'll tend to see things differently. It's not going to be a big aha most of the time. There are these sublime, small moments that really add to the whole deepening of our practice. So, we read a lot of poetry from famous people in the Dhamma, but um, this, this saying came from a tea box. <laughs> Have you, you know celestial seasonings? Is, they are here. It came from a celestial seasoning <laughs> tea box. Flowers unfold slowly and gently, bit by bit, in the sunshine. And a heart, too, must never be pushed or driven but unfold in its own perfect timing to reveal its true wonder and beauty. So that's that's what we're doing in our practice here. If we can just allow that to happen, to unfold in its natural beauty. A long, long time ago, um, I was in a relationship and um, I wanted my partner to be more involved in the Dhamma. This is 40 years ago uh, when I just became involved in the Dhamma. And um, it wasn't happening. It just wasn't happening. And so that partner said to me, don't pull my petals open. And it really kind of opened my eyes to like how I do that for myself, you know, I'm really trying to make, at that time, trying to make things happen faster than they need to, and how I could do that for another person, too. So I always remember that, it always struck me, and it really helped me to understand that everyone has their own unique process of, of opening to the Dharma, and to appreciate that in, in everyone. It was interesting to learn that during the time of the Buddha, he laid down certain rules for those who joined the bhikkhuhood, for those who became bhikkhus or monks. And like we do on retreat, he, in order to protect our practice on an individual level and on a community level, and to support the quietude and and the clarity, there were certain... um, uh, injunctions that he had, guidelines that he had, and the rules gave us a sense gave a sense of safety to everyone and a sense of seclusion and quietness so people could unfold in their unique ways. And so that the transformation of the heart and mind could be possible. So these rules were called the code of conduct, the Vinaya. And it said that in the beginning, when the monks were only a few, he had only one rule, and that one rule was patience. It still is a major, major um, thing that keeps the, the monkhood and, and the bhikkhu, uh, bhikkhunihood going. But patience was the main thing, the first and continues to be the main thing. And of course, is more joined and acted inconsiderately or in ways that made other people unsafe. 
there were more and more rules. So to this day, there's 227 rules of conduct. So the <clears throat> I want to uh, read something that came from the sports section of the Honolulu Advertiser. <laughs> um, now, I don't know about now, but when I moved to Hawaii uh, many years ago, more than 40 years ago, most of the uh, population were were Buddhists. And so we, we could have things, you know, Buddhist sayings and things like that, as stories, and even like in the sports page. So this was about a young boy who traveled to Japan to the school of a famous martial artist. And he really wanted to be a famous martial artist too. So he got there and when he arrived at the dojo, at the place of practice, he was given an audience by the teacher, by the sensei. And uh, the teacher asked, what do you wish from me? And the student said, I wish to be your student and become the finest karateka in uh, the country. And um, then the boy answered, how long must I practice? And he said, 10 years at least, the master answered. What if I study twice as hard as all your other students? The young boy said, well, he said, then 20 years it will take you. <laughs> but 20 years, what if I practice day and night with all my effort? Then it will take you 30 years, the master said. And so the young boy said, how is it that each time I say I will work harder, you tell me that it will take longer? And the sensei answered, when one eye is fixed upon your destination, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you're just half there. So by this story, we learn it doesn't help to rush something as precious and important as the development of deep peace, the development of our liberating understanding. It's a uh, it takes a very full, complete presence to do that in our practice. So a lot of times for me now, it's not the measure of how things are unfolding, but the measure is how present is the mind and heart in this moment. So in the early years, I would hear the teachings and feel a sense of being at home in the teachings, even though I didn't fully understand everything. I, I let the things that I didn't understand be in the, in the, on the back burner, and I, I did have some patience and some wherewithal to know that, oh, sometime I'll understand that. I, I don't get it now, but sometime I will. And there was a great hunger for me in, in the practice to a kind of a spiritual urgency that I talked about in the faith talk, to really understand deeply. But sometimes my spiritual urgency, you know, made me want to grab on more quickly than it was unfolding. This is a um, something said by Suzuki Roshi, a great Zen master from Japan. When your practice is rather greedy, then you will become discouraged with it. So we call this Dharma greed in the practice. There's Dharma greed. You want more than is actually being offered to you and more than you can actually take 
right now. And we see this, like I see this, and just in a simple way in books, you know, where, oh, there's a new book. Before there were only a few books, you know, and you could savor them, but like 40 years ago. But now there's so many and so many interesting uh, perspectives. And so, um, you know, I want this book and that book, and I really reflect on, oh, this is kind of like a Dharma greed. And when I look at all the books laying, you know, at the side of my bed <laughs> that I haven't read, and uh, it'll take me a lifetime maybe <laughs> to read them all, if I ever do get through them. Yeah, Dharma greets right on my bedside table sometimes. <laughs> so, one time when I went to Manindra, you know, it's one of the many times and was saying, I'm not good at this, I can't do this, it's a huge crisis for me. And um, one time he said, he, he could be scolding sometimes um, about anything, you know. So this time he said, I'm not asking you to cut the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just asking you to be mindful. And so I imagined, oh, in the, you know, probably in India to whack down things, you know, cut the jungle, that could be really. And I thought, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Just needing to be mindful, that's all. But when you get this huge crisis, you know, when something happens, like something goes by in your mind and you get really quite identified with it or believe it when it's just a passing thought, it becomes so much bigger than it really is because in our practice um, it's like a huge magnifying glass and it makes things bigger than they really are because that's what mindfulness does. It, it kind of lights up the area and it makes it bigger so we can see it more clearly. And so there's a name for this when there's a crisis and we make it bigger than it really is. And in the Dharma world we call it yogi mind. And so it's something to kind of reflect on for yourselves when you're having something go on and it begins to be a crisis for you. But maybe you look back and if that happened in my daily life, would this be such a big deal? And so we sometimes have to kind of get a grip and, you know, kind of take a look at it. So there's um, a um, definition of this that Steve Armstrong came up with. Uh, that yogi mind is defined as the magnification of the insignificant to a crisis stage. <laughs> so, have you done that? Uh, I, I've done that. So Manindra pointed out that uh, when I'd have these moments that I was expecting too much of my practice, it, it just wasn't happening the way I thought it should happen. But Maybe if I just stayed with it, you know, I'd, I'd get some, uh, a kind of dharma gratification. Just being content enough, being content enough with what's happening. I like this phrase that we use in Hawaii a lot. Maybe you use it here too. It's like, it's good enough. It's good enough. And it, it really helps us to be like, okay with things as they are, like middle path. You know, even... Um, we have this saying about you know, 
I'm a good enough mother. Or we don't have to be perfect. Um, or, yeah, I, I had a good enough mother. And it, that could be, you know, you just stay in the middle path with it all. So at a time when I was in a holding pattern um, in my practice, which sometimes we can come across, like it, it, it doesn't look like it's doing anything. This is one of the hardest times in practice when you think that I've been here for a long time already. And honestly, I was in the Dukkanyanas, a lot of Dukkha, for a couple of years at least. And it doesn't have to be that way for you. Don't take that in as a reality for yourself. But it, it depends on how your practice unfolds and each of our karma. And I felt like I was in that holding pattern for such a long time. It brought out a lot, and I learned a lot from that. And it really, it really helped me to be stronger in relationship to hardships, inner hardships that come up. So that's when Manindra gave me the, the sentence again, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree, to remind me that you know it just takes this gentle, persevering effort, adopt the pace of nature, and the secret is patience there. One time, I um, was attending a talk with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, or maybe I heard it on the radio, I can't remember. Um, heard it somewhere. And someone asked him, have you made progress in your practice? And it was interesting, you know, because I would compare, of course. And he said, uh, one year, uh, after one year, I cannot see much progress. After five years, a little bit. After 15 years, yeah, some progress. After 25 years, I can see progress. So, you know, what are we expecting? <laughs> I'm not the Dalai Lama. But I, I've been on the path a long time. And I've seen some, you know, some ways that the mind isn't grasping around things as much. I still have areas that are Achilles heels for me, but, you know, really difficult places. But it's a lot better than it was 40 years ago. I mean, better be, because I'm up here, right, talking to you. <laughs> I have a lot of examples <laughs> for how not to be. Um, yeah, and I hope examples I give you of that show my strength don't, um, you know, threaten you. Sometimes I hear it change somebody, and it's like, I only mean to give you some strength, you know. <laughs> so, so I love this one by Rilke. Be patient towards all that is unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers that cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything, to live the questions now. And perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So why did the Buddha say that it's the highest virtue? 
we discover that this quality activates and actualizes other virtuous qualities. Uh, For example, uh, patience is what helps equanimity to be developed, that spacious, non-reactive balance that helps us to understand more deeply. It also gives us the ability to rest the mind before it goes to the extremes of in compassion the extreme is cruelty or the other extreme is pity Uh, in equanimity the extreme is reactivity or the other side is passivity so in metta the extreme is hatred and the other side is attachment so this is what patience helps us to do to stay on the middle path that kind of balance of equanimity. It gives us the willingness to pause and observe a situation instead of immediately making a judgment and then making an action based on when we really haven't considered totally the whole situation. And then we decide on something that isn't seen with patience. I love them. I heard that in India Uh, the colloquial way of translating equanimity is seeing with patience. So it supports these very powerful uh, experiences that we have in the Dharma. Suzuki Roshi also calls this constancy, that long enduring mind and heart, constancy. Short moments many times So patience, it's a maturing of our practice. When we have patience, we can really see how much we've matured in our practice. And then we get impatient, and we bring patience to that too. One of my uh, mentors, not not personally, but just because I've come to know her, is Aung San Suu Kyi. And I know that she's being criticized a lot these days because of what's happening in Burma or Myanmar. And um, it's very complex what's happening there. And I don't even want to go into the details of it because it's, it's heart-wrenching. Of course, all of you know it's been in the news a long time about the ethnic cleansing that's been going on there. And she's in a really tough position because if um, she wants to say something, she has to be quiet because she could disappear just like that. And she had, they've taken her to jail for things that were so insignificant. And so she has to be careful so she can be there for the, for the good of people and not just disappear. I guess, well, um, maybe before you went into retreat, you might have heard that the Pope was in Myanmar. Uh-huh. And uh, he, this is the Pope, you know, very powerful person in, in the world, person that's given a lot of honor and respect. But he was... 
uh, not able, he was actually quieted from even using the word Rohingya in all of his talks. So uh, imagine somebody like that, and can you imagine the pressure that Aung San Suu Kyi is, is under? If she says something, she could disappear. And if she um, doesn't say something, she's criticized. So, she, you know, she was a, a student of Upandita, and she did a lot of metta practice. And I really admire her for her way of that constancy. It's like a flowing river that can flow around the difficulties of life and take praise. She had a lot of praise, won the Nobel Peace Prize, and now people are trying to take it away from her. And then um, uh, now there's a lot of criticism about her. So praise and blame, fame and disrepute, those are what she's experiencing now. And yet she must have to have a lot of patience to be able to stay alive for the good of many people who look to her you know, as kind of a rock, even though she's this tiny, tiny woman. So she's an example of endurance to me. And I don't know the whole story behind the scenes, but just knowing her a little bit, I can imagine, and knowing how Burma is, because I've been in Burma quite a few times, that it's treacherous to be there. And you have to watch out what you're saying. I mean, even the Pope can't say Rohingya in all of his talks. So um, during the times I was there in these last, you know, 15, 20 years, uh, we were not able to say anything, even bring up the word Aung San Suu Kyi before she became in that the place in her political stature now. I guess you can talk about her now, but if you did, you were supposedly kind of um, kind of blacklisted or something. And several friends of mine would not be able to get back into Burma because of that. So you had to be very careful about talking about the politics there, etc. So I know how treacherous it can be. And yet I see her patience and her endurance and her, her love for, for the poor people, and she's staying with it. And so um, she has a, a great capacity to know wisdom and to see the goodness in people. And one time, um, this was years ago, there was an interview um, and it was an Australian woman who was interviewing her. I saw it on YouTube. And so the interviewer asked her, when you hear or see or know what the military establishment is doing to the people of your country, don't you want to bring them down? And she had that, she has these very expressive eyes and this English accent. And she said, "I, oh no, she said, not at all. I want to bring them up to their potential. And it's just amazing how she can see all of this, but you know, she sees the goodness, and she's really an example to me of being able to see the goodness in, 
in something like that, even. So, um, bring them up to their potential. And then the last two words were, of integrity. So she sees a potential in that. And yet, um, you know, she has to go through all that she has to go through. Um, So there's an equanimity of, there's a patience that shows equanimity, that gentle flowing endurance that patience activates, that non-opposition to the challenges of, of your life or other people's lives. And the devotion to, your, to a deep inner sense of your own integrity and seeing that capacity in others, it really gives us a, a way to see life that's very different than what, how we might see it now. After one time that she was imprisoned for something just ridiculous, um, she was brought on trial. And um, when she came into the room, there were military men and high political men there. Uh, and um, when she walked into the room, she was kind of frail because she was sick from being imprisoned. And all of them stood up and with just with complete respect for her. This was another news um, uh, cast that was saying what happened in that room. And somebody was able to report it on the news that all of the military stand up, stood up, and uh, all of the other political people that were around, and they put their hands together in pranam. And they really, they really showed their respect for her, even though there's that side of them that can be the way it is there in Burma. So we all know only too well how impatience also has tremendous power over us, impatience. So it's important to see it when it's there. And whenever I see it in relationship to my close friends or my own family, and when I feel impatience with me, I just, when other people are impatient with me, I just feel like, wow, this is really a horrible feeling, you know, when somebody's impatient with you and what am I putting out there to others? It's really a lesson of how it feels for oneself. And so when I understand this about myself and and, and kind of the rushing around I do uh, in my life, and I have done because of raising kids, I just remind myself that it's better to make a list of not to do, what I'm just going to cross off my list than you know, keep looking at my to-do list because it makes me rush too much. There was an experience I had with my mother that really awakened me to a sensitivity about this. So I'm just kind of opening to our daily life now because uh, we, can, we, we have a huge opportunity to practice patience in our daily life that can transfer here. And I, I was um, with my mother in, in a grocery store and she would come and visit uh, my home about every year for a month or two, six weeks or two months. And um, this time, one of the last times she was there, she was in her way, 
80s and she was still strong, but she was slower. And she loved to go grocery shopping to get things that she would cook for us. And so she would just, it was nice because she could push the cart and kind of lean on something, you know. And I just had this time that I had to get somewhere. And I was like, oh gosh, she's going so slow. So at one point, at this particular time, I went over to her and I said, Mom, we have to go. And I was just kind of pushing the cart faster. And she said, but I'm not quite finished. And I said, but we have to go, you know, you have to get in the car and go to the next thing. And I was a little impatient. I wasn't mean, but I was a little impatient with her. So I was pushing the cart faster than she could go. She's trying to keep up, paid the bill. And then we went out to the car and she got in the car and I was getting in and, you know, starting it up. And my mother was sniffling. And um, then she got out a Kleenex and she was dabbing her nose and her eyes. She's a very quiet Filipina woman. And I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she said, she didn't speak, doesn't speak English that well. She said, but she gets her phrases from TV, you know. And she said, I'm shedding a tear. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought, oh, I hurt my mother. And you know, we're raised in Asian families to have this great respect, and I do, for my mother. And so I, you know, she was just crying a little bit. She didn't want to let me know that she hurt me, but uh, that I hurt her. And so I said, Mom, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. And, you know, we just go on. You don't talk about it anymore, but there was that interchange. And then, you know, she died soon after that. And I really feel bad. I don't ever want to do that again to anybody. It really just brought up for me how important patience is in our lives. And I know how it is when I feel rushed. So it's painful lessons that we have and impatience even with ourselves. Patience is a strong force, and it has to be strong to deal with all the things that come up in our lives, the things that we do to hurt ourselves and to hurt others. There's a saying by um, A.A. Milne from Winnie the Pooh. Rivers know this. There is no hurry. We shall get there someday. I love that little one. So this is the last one about patience. A Chinese proverb. Patience is power. With time and patience, the mulberry leaf becomes silk. So may that be so for all of us. Let's sit for a moment with that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.